morning. Uh, thank you all for coming, to everyone who is here and to everyone who's watching online. Um, welcome. Uh, this is a book forum looking at the new edited volume, Crude Strategy, Rethinking the US Military Commitment to Defend Persian Gulf Oil. Um, and this is a really fascinating look at the resources, the military resources that the US currently commits um, and has committed historically to defending the free flow of oil from the Persian Gulf in the Middle East. Um, and what I, I think is particularly interesting about this project is it is an interdisciplinary project. So there are economists, political scientists, historians, looking at all the different aspects, the costs and benefits of this relationship that we have with Persian Gulf oil and looking at where it might go in the future as the global oil markets shift and change. Um, so joining me on stage are the two editors. Uh, we've got Charles Glazer, who's a professor of political science and the director of the Institute for Security and Conflict Studies at George Washington University. Um, we've got Rosemary Kalanick, who's an assistant professor of political science at Williams College. Um, one of the contributing authors, Ken Vincent, here in his capacity as a visiting scholar in the political science department at George Washington University. And then finally, um, we've got John Glazer, Cato's own associate director of foreign policy studies, uh, who'll be helping us discuss the book today. And so I thought we might start today with um, just a couple of minutes each on, you know, Sum up the book for us. Tell us why you decided to write it, what, what's so interesting about this topic, um, and then we'll, we'll shift over to some more specific questions. Okay, great. I'm gonna go first, and I'm gonna sort of give the motivations for why we did this book and how we set it up, and then Rose is gonna give you more of the findings, and Ken will give you a closer look at his chapter. So the motivation is to look at the question which has been largely overlooked in the debate over US grand strategy. If you look at the Persian Gulf, it's the one key area of the globe to which the United States is committed that has not been carefully examined in the grand strategy debate. And even analysts who believe we should cut our commitments to Europe and Asia have pretty much agreed that the importance of Persian Gulf oil um, justifies the US commitment to the Gulf, which is many, many decades old at this point. So we decided that this required and deserved a new look for a variety of reasons. First of all, not only had it not been looked at, but the world had changed quite dramatically since that commitment was made. When the commitment was made, the United States was involved in a Cold War competition with the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union posed a, what we, a security threat via its potential um, threat to the oil, because the United States depended upon the flow of oil to be able to fight a long war in Europe, and that was the defining military purpose, not the only, but defining military purpose throughout the Cold War. So if the Soviet Union could cut off the flow of oil, um, it was a, potentially a security threat. The argument we make in the book um, is that that's no longer the case, that a threat to the oil would be an economic threat to the United States, but not a security threat, and therefore we can ask the question, how large would that threat be? A second reason to look um, at this question um, is because the global um, economic environment and particularly the global oil environment has changed sufficiently dramatically that it, we should reconsider our commitment. Turns out that's not the most important factor in our analysis, and, um, but it is, nevertheless was one of the motivations. And then third, at least until recently, and we don't know where the Trump administration will be going, um, but there was in increasing the pressure on the US defense budget to keep it either not increasing or increasing slowly 
while the United States shifted its military effort to, the, um, to East Asia and dealing with China. And so to the extent that the Persian Gulf was a major um, in military investment for the United States, it, it was needed to be reconsidered. Now it's possible in the, in the planned Trump buildup that that pressure will become smaller. <coughs> so given that setup, we asked in the book four questions, and there were questions that have really not been asked um, about the Gulf. Um, so the first is the key, and it's, it is to the key move is to reframe this as an economic issue for the United States, not as a security issue. So then four questions come. How much more likely would a conflict in the Gulf be that would disrupt the flow of oil if the United States ended its military commitment to the Gulf? Second, how much damage would that disruption do to the U.S. economy? And in that context, it would be the U.S. economy taking into account the impact on the global economy but as it impacted the United States. Third, how much does the United States spend militarily to, um, to protect the flow of oil in the Gulf? And then finally, what are other ways that we could invest our resources to reduce our vulnerability to an oil disruption? So if you think that we spend a certain amount on defense, but you could take a fraction of that and reduce your vulnerability, then that could over time be a better investment than defending the Gulf. So these four factors turn out, you know, give us in a sense the expected value of protecting the Gulf um, militarily compared to alternative approaches. Thank you. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm gonna pick up with where Charlie left off, um, which is to say that we organized the book in order to answer these four questions in order. Um, in terms of how much it would hurt the economy Ken Vincent wrote that chapter, and I think he's going to say a few things, so I'm not going to speak too much about that except to say that um, it would be significantly uh, painful for the United States economy, but lots of uncertainty there as to how much. Um, the next question, how likely would the disruption be if the United States left the Persian Gulf? Um, this is maybe the biggest question, uh, and we divided it into thinking about internal threats to Gulf oil and external threats to Gulf oil. Internal threats meaning, um, what if there's regime instability within major oil producing countries? And the nightmare scenario everybody thinks about is Saudi Arabia, right? Could there be domestic turmoil in Saudi Arabia? Um, that would lead to a major cutoff of oil. Um, and so Tom Lippman wrote that chapter and he basically told us that the regime is actually quite stable much more stable than, than many people looking from the outside in uh, would expect. Um, the United States doesn't need to have a military presence in the Persian Gulf in order to help them with intelligence and other things that can um, you know, catch any kind of attacks ahead of time. Um, and if the United States did get involved in some sort of military uh, situation in Saudi Arabia, it could actually worsen the situation because the United States is so very unpopular. So whatever side the U.S. intervened on, um, it would damage that side potentially. Okay, so we conclude ultimately that that's not a huge threat. Um, the external threats, this is threats that have to do with country to country threats in the region. And uh, Josh Rovner, who wrote that chapter, identifies three of these potential threats. One is that you have uh, one country that becomes so powerful that it takes over other oil producers in the Gulf and it becomes a hegemon regionally, right? So the most, the most powerful uh, state in the region. And then it could, it could consolidate enough oil that it could potentially 
move prices, right? It could potentially have control over, over prices and hurt them, right? Um, use prices to hurt the United States and its allies, right? Um, the second potential contingency is that there is a, a major regional war where um, either through the war or by accident, uh, large, months, large amounts of oil get taken off the market just through collateral damage alone, right? Both of those two threats are not very high um, because each of the three countries that might have a run at hegemony, Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, they're all too weak to be able to pull it off. And because they're too weak to take and hold territory, um, we also think it's unlikely that they would even try, right? Um, so the likelihood of hegemony and of the war happening or some kind of war happening are low. And then finally, the, the biggest threat that we can't dismiss, even though it's unlikely and not, it's still relatively small, these are unlikely things, right, is that Iran could threaten or actually close the Strait of Hormuz if the United States left the Gulf. Um, it's not clear why Iran would want to do this. It would hurt them, um, arguably more even, than it would hurt everyone else. Um, but because American forces in the Gulf probably help to, help to deter Iran from doing this, we can't say that the threat wouldn't increase if the United States left, right? Um, that said, it's still a pretty unlikely scenario. So um, in terms of the other two questions, the other two factors, the cost of the forces um, that we deploy in the Gulf, um, depending on what we did in terms of rearranging uh, sort of the planning construct for the United States, right? We, we currently have a, a two um, major regional contingency strategy, a two MRC strategy. Um, and if we kept the two MRC strategy, the United States could save about $5 billion a year, um, which is not a ton of money, it's some money. Um, we think that because one of the potential regional contingencies um, in the planning construct has always been the Persian Gulf, right, dealing with some kind of threat in the Persian Gulf. If the United States walks back from that commitment, um, it might be possible to drop to a one MRC strategy. And if that's the case, the United States would save up to $75 billion a year. So that starts to get into, into bigger amounts of money. And then finally, um, John Duffield, who wrote the chapter on alternative measures of, of securing uh, the United States economy from disruption, found that an investment of anywhere from $100 billion to $200 billion um, in increasing the size of the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, um, or in uh, reducing demand for oil through supporting R&D for electric cars, for example. Um, you know, 100 to $200 billion of investment in that could cut American consumption in half by 2035. Um, so there, there's some hopeful numbers there. So altogether, um, because there's so much uncertainty with all of these factors, we can't say 100% for certain, yes, you know, current American policy is wrong and the United States should leave. But it's definitely the case that the conventional wisdom that the, U that the United States has to be there is much weaker than, than most people think, right? And, and should continue to be challenged and reevaluated, right? Um, the United States is far less sensitive to a disruption than it was in 1973, uh, in part because the economy just is much less oil intensive and will continue to be less oil intensive. Um, 
the reasonable sized investments in things like increasing the strategic petroleum reserve um, or building bypass pipelines to, to have less oil go through the Strait of Hormuz and hence be threatened by Iran. Um, those alternatives, if we put money into that over the next decade, then it's, it's possible that the United States would be in a good position to actually withdraw, assuming there's not some major strategic change in the region. Well, I'm very gratified to be here. Um, this chapter was kind of an adventure to write because the topic of oil in the U.S. economy and um, the sort of United States relationship with petroleum more generally changed so much uh, during the period in which I was writing it. Um, just to give you an idea, in the five years leading up to the publication of this book, from 2011 to 2016, uh, oil production in the United States, that's crude oil production, went from 5.5 million barrels a day to 9 million barrels a day. And uh, petroleum imports decreased from 8.5 million barrels a day to, to 5 million barrels a day. That's net petroleum imports. So. There has been a tectonic shift in the U.S. oil space, um, more changed in the preceding five years than had changed in the 30 years before that. So um, writing this chapter uh, required a lot of revisions and a lot of sort of growing with current events. Um, the, in, in that five-year period, oil consumption in the United States went from around 19 million barrels a day to 19 and a half million barrels a day and consumption over the last decade is sort of oscillated between 18 and a half and 19 and a half, depending on uh, the sort of status of the economy. So consumption, which is where the main vulnerability of the United States economy derives from, has been, has been pretty stable even as production has increased. Um, so what, what happened with this chapter is, is at, the, at the beginning, it was, it was very straightforward. It's like the United States is vulnerable to oil supply disruptions. This is a big deal. And as current events sort of caught up, I had to make a more and more forceful case that this relationship does indeed matter. Um, so I lay out four, four points that, that have been durable in the face of increasing uh, U.S. oil supply. One, uh, oil is an integral part of the American economy. Two, um, the United States economy is... Um, is still vulnerable to fluctuations in the oil price through the global price mechanism. Three, uh, the characteristics of oil supply and demand make it uh, uniquely prone to price shocks. And four, the, the Persian Gulf region still represents uh, a central component of the world oil market. So my chapter lays out uh, those factors and kind of walks through this literature that's developed over the decades on um, exactly why and how and to what extent the U.S. economy is vulnerable to shocks to world oil supply and the oil price. Um, the question that uh, follows that is how big of an impact it, uh, would an outage in the Persian Gulf have on the American economy? And in my chapter, I actually frame this. Uh, it's, it's between 50 and $850 billion. So... Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty there, um, which is, is, is that uncertainty comes from, one, how sensitive is the economy uh, to price shocks, and two, um, how much would the, would the oil price change in a given shock? And th both of those parameters are, are fairly difficult to pinpoint with much precision. So this is still a relation, the 
U.S. relationship with oil is still very important. Uh, the American economy is still vulnerable to oil shocks, but exactly uh, what what a shock would look like for the economy is, is pretty tough to tell. So I try to establish establish a range, but pinpointing it is pretty difficult. So I think it might be worth uh, kind of detailing as we start out here um, what exactly the U.S. commitment to the Gulf is. Um, what, what are we talking about when we talk about, you know, U.S. posture in the Gulf? And compared to Europe and Asia, deployment numbers can be hard to sometimes precisely nail down uh, in the Middle East because a lot of them are on temporary or rotational basis, and um, sometimes the government keeps certain details secret um, in part to allay host nation sensitivities. We have somewhere between 35 and 45,000 troops in the region currently. So have just under 10,000 in Afghanistan. Uh, five or 6,000 are rotating in and out of Iraq. We have a few hundred advisors and training people in Syria. Um, 13,000 Samoad troops in Kuwait. We have a little over 6,000 at the Navy's Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. Um, major air bases in Qatar and uh, United Arab Emirates and small access positions in places like Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Oman. And, you know, part of the reason for dwelling on that, I think, is a lot of the discussion in uh, D.C. these days in reference to the Obama administration's policy towards the region, uh, the word retrenchment gets thrown around. And this is one of the many occasions in which I understand that people in D.C. use different dictionaries than I do. Because, you know, retrenchment is quite a bit of what this book talks about uh, as a possible posture. And it's not the one that the Obama administration, of course, um, implemented. Of course, it's down from the peak, which I think in December 2008 was more than 230,000 troops in the region. But it, even if you look at the broad sweep of history in the sort of post-war post even, um, picture of U.S. foreign policy in the region, it's, it's a substantial commitment. And it makes up a lot of our um, expenditures. Barry Posen, uh, in his book Restraint, I think estimated that U.S. forces in the region make up about 15 to 20 percent of the defense budget, and that doesn't include the costs of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. That's probably on the higher end of the estimates, uh, but still this is a substantial commitment. Thanks. Okay, yeah, so I think that provided a, a good overview of this. Um, I'd like to, to go back to a topic that I think you all touched on, but which people often assume is the key motivating factor behind our discussions of energy security today, which is that global oil markets are changing, you know, the growth of fracking, the growth of U.S. domestic production. Um, but you mentioned, Charlie, in your, your remarks that actually this wasn't really the, the key factor in your analysis. And so I wondered, could you talk a little about that? And particularly, I was struck by this phrase that you use in the book that you argue that there is a, a difference between national security justifications for oil protection and between prosperity justifications. Yeah, so two quick things. One is I wanted to clarify or touch on a point related to that that also Ken raised, which is that it turned that the economic vulnerability of the United States depends upon how much it consumes and the oil dependence or the oil, the role of oil in the economy, but not on how much it imports. Mm -hmm. 
because we're sensitive to price. The economy is sensitive to price. So a lot of discussion of the oil markets um, has focused on fracking and the change in U.S. production. The real issues are how the intensity of the economy to oil um, and how much it consumes. And it doesn't really, even if we didn't, to some extent, the whole idea, not entirely, but in large part, the idea of economic um, independence or oil independence as freeing us from the importance of um, stability in global oil markets is flawed because the United States t is a price taker in the global market. So there have been these big fluctuations in terms of import, imports and the amount the United States produces, but it's actually a little bit beside the central issue. Um, that's not to say that the U.S. economy depends on because we're, it's, oil is very valuable, but in terms of the overall economy, um, so that's one, that was the, so we were not, even though that was on our minds, it was actually, turns out to just not be a central feature of the equation. Um, but the issue about prosperity versus security is a key issue, and I think I did go over it pretty quickly, so I say again. So if, if our security depended upon the free flow of oil, then it becomes very hard to put a value on it. Not that you can't value security, but it's just it's, it's hard to monetize it, and particularly if you're imagining in the Cold War that you might literally be crippled in a conventional war in Europe because you, you are not, not so much the United States, but our, in, in particular our allies needed that oil, you could actually be in jeopardy of losing to a major power, and we thought that was the whole focus of our military policy. And um, so it would, it would be very, not to say you couldn't put a, a price on the value of that oil, but it's very, or the free flow of oil, but it's very, very hard to do. And in a sense, almost outside the sort of expected benefits framework when your truly vital interests, um, security interests are at stake. What's happened um, is that there's the, cut, the interruption of the flow of oil would no longer leave the United States or its core allies vulnerable to attack or coercion. That doesn't mean that, we're, that, that the free flow of oil doesn't matter, but what it does mean is it's really about the economic cost of a disruption. And so that enabled us to then frame the problem very differently and say, just as Rose summarized and Ken, so if you think about what, how, likely would, is it, how likely is it that this type of disruption would happen and then what would the cost be in terms of the percentage of GDP, you can actually start to say, is it worth investing every year? Our number is, close to, is closer to 15% of the defense budget. Um, the defense, but $75 billion a year, you know, should you save $75 billion a year and once in a while, have a disruption which would cost $500 billion a year. At least you can talk about that and we can argue about it in fairly concrete, monetized terms. So that was, that was the move there. And the whole book is laid out on the premise that that's a reasonable framing. So if somebody wanted, we've actually gotten very few challenges to that framing, but if somebody wanted to challenge that framing, then they're going to really do the core setup of the book. Okay, so um, so one of the issues that, that you raised, Rose, that I would love to come back to is right. this question of, of Saudi Arabia. You know, to what extent is this about the security of the Persian Gulf, and to what extent is it about the, the stability of Saudi Arabia, the U.S., the long-running U.S. relationship with the Saudi state? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, well, I mean, much of the American commitments to the Gulf had little to do initially with Saudi Arabia, right? It was because of the Soviet Union threatening the Gulf and then later because of uh, Saddam Hussein threatening the Gulf, right? These are the things that really brought in large numbers of American forces, right? So there were always sort of international threats. Um, yet, 
whenever you ask somebody why we're in the Gulf or what would happen if the United States left the Gulf, um, a scenario that comes up is this, you know, well, what if the Saudi regime just disintegrated? Or what if Al-Qaeda or some incredibly unfriendly regime came to power in Saudi Arabia? Um, and it just doesn't seem to be the case that that's a problem that is very amenable to being fixed by military force, right? Because you're talking about internal stability within a country. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. Do you want to add anything? I mean, historically, there have been quietly discussed plans at various times in the U.S. government, including in the 70s, about actually be using force to stabilize Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, it's a very large and costly operation. It's not literally impossible, but it would be a, an operation much larger in scale and difficulty, less likely, um, than what we tried to do in Iraq. Um, but so it's not, not that you couldn't do it, but it's a very... It also turns out that an awful lot of the help that we provide to the Saudis is in intelligence, mm -hmm. training, and weapons, and all those things that are not, we could continue to do um, even if we left the Gulf. Um, so there's that other dimension of it, which it doesn't, even if we were to withdraw our forces, it doesn't mean that we couldn't continue to participate in Saudi security, including on the cyber side as well. And the, the one th last thing, which is Rose alluded to in her very clear introductory comments, is that there are various ways to reduce Saudi vulnerability because Saudi probably have the vulnerability from domestic disruption, but there is also the possibility of attack um, from other sources, like a, an Iranian attack, could be a missile attack, it could be some other type of attack against key Saudi facilities. Um, but if Iran were to close the Persian Gulf, um, it's still possible that, or the Strait of Hormuz rather, that Saudi could actually export most of its oil um, to the Red Sea but it does need to build some infrastructure to do that. So various aspects of Saudi vulnerability can be reduced by policies that it could um, pursue in peacetime that are actually not very expensive in the scale of things. Yeah, I think discussion about Saudi Arabia in this context is actually really important because um, the basis of US policy in the region is ener energy security. Um, but I think that leads policymakers to overlook the many ways in which our very close alliance with Saudi Arabia uh, is a net negative for U.S. interests. Um, so, for example, although it's trite to say, it is the, the, the case that our alliance with Saudi Arabia and the presence of U.S. troops um, there from 1991 to 2001 um, was used by al-Qaeda as a propaganda tool to rally extremists and even create some sympathy among the general Muslim population. Um, and, you know, Caitlin Talmadge in her chapter in the book cites Chicago University's Robert Pape as saying that, you know, that presence uh, arguably made the 9-11 attacks 10 to 20 times more likely, um, which is significant. Uh, it's also the case, I think, that Saudi Arabia and our close alliance with them um, it, it, it's one of the more conspicuous examples where stated U.S. Policy, stated U.S. values um, are embarrassingly inconsistent with uh, policy. Um, it's one of the most repressive states in the world, and uh, I think when we condemn the human rights abuses of our adversaries um, and don't sort of remain quite mum about uh, Saudi Arabian abuses of the same kind or even support um, uh, Saudi Arabia as they commit those abuses, that, in a real sense, that does damage U.S. reputation and even arguably our, our 
uh, more tangible interests. Third and finally, there are several areas in which Saudi Arabia seems to take a, a position that directly contradicts U.S. interests. So um, Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, infamously wrote a secret diplomatic cable um, that said that donors in Saudi Arabia constitute the most significant uh, source of funding to Sunni terrorist groups worldwide. Um, that's a widely understood fact, although it's loudly, you know, rarely said aloud, but it's a pretty stark assessment of one of our closest allies. And although there's some murkiness with regard to uh, how much of it is uh, state-directed or not, it's, it's still uh, deeply troubling for U.S. interests. Secondly, you know, um, I think, you know, when it, when it comes to Saudi Arabia's rivalry with Iran, I was uh, very much in favor of the Iran nuclear deal. I think the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was clearly in U.S. interest for a number of reasons. Not only was it a robust non-proliferation agreement, but and, and sort of rolled back Iran's nuclear program. Um, but it's also the case, I think, that it calmed the more hawkish voices that were arguing that the only way to resolve the Iran nuclear issue was through bombs. Uh, and that, the, the deal, I, I think, proved that wrong. And that, again, that was within our interest. Saudi Arabia was one of a number of our regional allies that resisted the deal. And I think they did it not because um, it represented a direct security threat to them, but I think largely they feared a U.S. tilt towards their strategic regional rival, Iran. Um, and then finally, there's, there's, there's Yemen, right? So uh, it's a Saudi-led uh, air war against Yemen. Um, the United States has supported it uh, really from the beginning um, for no real good strategic reason that I can decipher beyond trying to satiate Saudi concerns about this perceived tilt. Uh, but it's led to serious humanitarian consequences and, of course, something of a safe haven for al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. So I think there are a number of ways in which our close alliance with Saudi Arabia is detrimental to U.S. interests, but often they're overlooked mm -hmm. in the context of, you know, energy policy for the region generally. So can I just add on? Oh, oh, Rose, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to add to that. So um, on the flip side, I mean, one of the reasons that we looked at Saudi Arabia specifically um, is that it's it's widely considered to be special, right, in its role in the oil market, both because it produces so much, right, on the order of 10 million barrels a day, right, and because it has gigantic reserves. Um, those things are important, but more important historically has been that it's one of the, it's really the only country that reliably has spare capacity, right? right? So they don't, you know, produce at 100% capacity all the time. And what does that mean? It means that they have wiggle room. They're one of the, they're, the only country that can very quickly increase production to offset a disruption somewhere else in the world, right? Um, and having uh, a close relationship with a country that can be the swing producer uh, and keep prices moderate and keep prices low, even in the face of some kind of uh, unexpected uh, sort of event somewhere else in the world, that's been really beneficial for, for the United States over time. Um, not to say that that the relationship isn't problematic in all kinds of ways, but, um, but they are different, I think, than the other countries in the region. And I just wanna make a somewhat different point, which is that um, not to agree or disagree with what John was just saying, but it's, um, and those are very important additional judgments that somebody might wanna take into account in thinking about 
our policy toward the region. But just to clarify in terms of the book, um, we didn't consider um, those factors. Um, we, we framed it narrowly in terms of like the expected value um, of oil in dollar terms and, and stuck to that. And so it gives a foundation, I think, for then addressing these other types of issues. Many people disagree with P Professor Pape and other people on the extent to which our involvement in Saudi Arabia is a source of, of terrorist threats to the United States. And um, we just bracketed all those things, not because they're not important, but we were narrowly addressing this sort of economic value and economic cost and opportunity costs of the military commitment. And then hopefully people will build in various ways, like John's comments or others, to say, well, that's then you should or shouldn't be in the region. But ours is, um, you know, I'm not taking a position on that, but just because it is on this, it would take just to clarify the boundaries. Um, our analysis would hold independent of your views on those issues, with the exception, I think, of Rose's um, amendment, which is that Saudi is or has been, it's, it's to some extent, its ability has been reduced, but it has been a stable, a price stabilizing force in the market because it is a swing producer. Um, the United States now actually maybe has greater potential to serve as a swing producer depending upon the time frame, because of the speed with which you can, we can bring on fracking. Um, and it's, it's not responsive in the, on the order of, of days and weeks, but certainly on the order of months. Um, and Saudi capacity at the same time is, um, at least in certain periods, has been um, pretty much close to producing what it can. So the swing producer um, may actually be shifting or there may be more than one swing, swing producer going forward. And I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback on that. The, the surgeability of tide oil has, is, is pretty substantial, but there, there is an element of speed that's not there. Um, tide oil industry estimates, I mean, you might be able in a, in a big price run up to surge by a million barrels a day over the course of a year. Um, which is which is a long time to have extremely high oil prices, uh, spare capacity. Um, depending on what definition uh, you choose to use, can be brought online um, sometime between 30 days and 90 days, and then sustained after that. Um, so, uh, tide oil is is surgeable, but there's an element of speed um, that, that, that's only available in in Saudi and the other core OPEC. Can I raise a different issue that's related to that? Or I don't know if you want to. Yeah, so another thing we've, we've touched on, but I think we didn't give full attention to, is the um, potential or the role of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in offsetting shortfalls. Um, and some of the, da the, da the damage estimates, the dollar damage estimates uh, um, that Ken spoke about were for a, a very, very large disruption, like half of the flow of the oil through the Strait of Hormuz or the, so the entire Saudi production. So on the order of 10 million barrels a day, um, over an extended period. And the models vary a little bit. Um, and in the book, he came up with sort of a median estimate, um, which we used um, to consider things. But those estimates don't take into account um, the role of the SPR to um, supplement or offset the drop-off. And so while there would definitely be fear and turmoil in the market, and there might be price increases because of um, for a whole bunch of psychological reasons and maybe even some friction in getting the SPR online, um, the United States and actually globally, there's a very large cushion against large disruptions. Um, so that we have, um, if, if you think of our share as being, you know, if the share of the disruption might be a couple million barrels a day, the United States can cover that for the better part of a year just from the SPR. Um, and our allies and increasingly China are in a similar role, and we've never seen a disruption on that scale. 
So in a sense, I, I think you need swing producers um, way before a year because it would actually take pressure off the reserves. But one thing that's very, very different than from the 1970s is there's a very large investment um, which gives it a very, a very substantial cushion assuming the system works well. And it's a cushion that um, is established essentially for Europe and many of our Asian allies and China is building on its own. So it's a, um, you have to keep in mind that the disruption, the global market will not feel the full price effect of even a large disruption um, because of the way that the, um, the United States and its oil allies have, have responded. And I think this is a great point that the book does a really good job of getting at, which is that there might be non-military ways uh, in which you can mitigate some of these vulnerabilities. And Rose, you, you addressed a couple of them. But perhaps you could talk a little further just about how, how we might approach uh, these energy security, energy vulnerability issues from a non-military standpoint. Yeah. Um, sure, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, um, you have supply measures, right? Things you can do to make the United States have a, a better supply or sort of a, a contingent emergency supply or demand measures, things that reduce the American demand for oil. Um, supply measures are a little bit easier uh, to sort of quantify and think about ahead of time because these are things like increasing the size of the strategic petroleum reserve um, or helping to build these bypass pipelines, right, that would take oil away from the Strait of Hormuz and, and sort of over. And these are non-military means of um, uh, resilience, right? In terms of the, the demand side, um, the technology is still developing, right? So this is something that's going to take R&D over a long period of time. Um, there are many ways to think about doing it, everything from you know, imposing a gasoline tax, which is not necessarily what we're saying we should do, um, to discourage driving. Uh, to uh, looking into ways to, to build infrastructure for electric cars um, or to, to incentivize the production of very, um, uh, very, high, very high MPG, like miles per gallon uh, technology, right? Um, again, just sort of lessen how much oil the United States uses. Um, and that, you know, that can also touch into a, a whole set of questions about industrial policy within the United States that that can get very complicated very quickly. Um, but the potential is there, right? Um, we also, we don't talk about it in the book um, at all, but there is another benefit of that. It's outside our analysis, but I'm happy to bring it in, which is you know, the global warming aspect of it, right? So I mean, if, if the United States is able to switch to alternative fuels, um, that has other benefits as well that are sort of outside of our analysis. And I would just add on that, that one thing that the United States is planning to do, but it now may be under reconsideration, is that um, partly with starting in the Bush administration and then pushed even further by the Obama administration, the, the average miles per gallon for the U.S. car fleet is, um, is going up quite extensively. Mm -hmm. um, and that will make, that's a very large impact because um, cars are the, uh, a major um, source of our consumption. And so to the extent that that policy follows through, it will actually be contributing to re reducing um, oil consumption in the US. And then there are other available technologies um, like natural gas that are maybe not practical for short haul for cars, but actually for long haul 
uh, for trucking could actually make a very large difference. Um, it would be both good on the climate side, but also very valuable on the oil consumption side. Um, and that's th these are within technological reach. Now, so there's some problems on this. There are infrastructure problems with um, natural gas, but this is a case where the, the government could step in. And it actually, you know, if you think about spending money on that instead of spending on the military, it's not to say that it's a better spend, but you can think of it as an alternative use of that money to try and um, protect the United States from disruption. So some of the things are actually happening and are available. I mean, you're also many, I'm sure all of you are familiar with, to some extent with the car electrification of the, of the car fleet. Um, that could also be facilitated by infrastructure building. So those things are like in the, within the technology envelope. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is much longer term R&D on sort of on much riskier technologies, which many people think is a very good investment, but it's politically difficult sometimes in the United States. Mm -hmm. and, and just to throw a wet blanket on all this optimism, um, the, the, most of the, the transportation energy consumption <coughs> forecast currently um, show, show, show consumption, petroleum consumption being pretty much flat mm -hmm. going forward. Um, which is actually pretty extraordinary, right? Because economic, the, the economy is going to get bigger, and, and that means that we're going to be getting more efficient. Um, current projections don't don't typically show transformational penetration of uh, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, natural gas vehicles. They do they do show a meaningful uh, a meaningful penetration, but you know, the thing that one reads is more bullish. Uh, than the last on, on these technologies, so there, there might really be something there. An another factor uh, that's less relevant in the U.S. context, but more relevant in the global context in, in terms of how petroleum matters to the economy more generally, is that petroleum consumption is a factor of <coughs> urban planning as well as uh, transportation technologies outside of the United States. So a lot of the economic growth that's going to be taking place outside of the United States going forward um, cities are building up rather than building out. So um, de demand might moderate that way as well. Yeah, And I think, again, this is something really interesting that comes through, and particularly in your chapter, when you're talking about how vulnerable the US economy is to these kind of shocks, is there are a lot of variables at play here. And there's a big range of estimates of how costly this could be, and experts differ on, on how costly it might be. Right. So. And, and I think that. I, I try to be as circumspect as possible in terms of making an estimate. Some of the some of the some of the factors, though, that were there in the 1970s are still there in terms of consumption expenditures being crowded out by increased fuel prices and um, many elements of the economy still being petroleum intensive. So, um, I mean, I, I, I was happy to provide a non-answer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Never ask an economist uh, to give you a definite answer. Um, <laughs> maybe this is a good opportunity then to transition to like the last third of the book, which is where um, yourselves and some of the other authors start to talk about how the US might alter its force posture mm -hmm. going forward. Um, and it seems, it seems like what you're suggesting is very much a long-term process of, of planning and thinking about where we might go from here. Can we take it? Or, okay. Sure. Yeah, so I mean, we have two, there's two pieces to our recommendation. I mean, one is sort of sketching a, a long-term um, decade to two-decade um, effort to reduce U.S. dependence in ways that we've talked about and then reevaluate. And the argument is that the combination of reducing the energy intensity of the U.S. economy plus building additional resilience into the, into the oil market, whether it's through the SPR 
um, or stabilizing Saudi would put us in, you know, from a decade from forward from where that investment started, we could reevaluate and ask, can we actually leave? Not to say we wouldn't have foreign policy interest in the Gulf, but can we essentially eliminate our commitment to the free flow of Gulf oil? And what we recommended in the book, and also um, if you want to have a primer on the book in a foreign affairs article that came out not too long ago, is that the United States plan to move down that, that trajectory that the investment of $100 billion ballpark and maybe somewhat more over a decade is a worthwhile investment in any event, small fraction of what we spend on the military, and then actually evaluate based upon the success of those efforts, but also changes in the geopolitics of the region, um, whether it makes sense for the United States literally to leave. Um, there's a separate question, and, and I, we say we're, we're not agnostic, we're inclined to think that we should with some amount of good luck, that that would be an option. But we're not saying we should end our military commitment now. Um, there's a separate question, which is whether or not our current commitment is well-structured for the missions we need to perform in the region. And so we have one chapter which sort of tries to close out the whole loop of the analysis, which is by Caitlin Talmadge, uh, who's a colleague of mine at GW, and ask, if you want to maintain the current commitment, it, do we have the right force structure? And her argument is no, that for a variety of reasons, the force structure could be much, and she looks at the specific missions we need to perform, um, and the most critical one being being able to um, open the Gulf, I mean, open the Strait of Hormuz, if in fact it were really closed by Iran or someone, some other country. Um, and her argument is that we can have much smaller footprint on land, that we don't need to have um, a, a carrier group pretty much committed to the Persian Gulf on a pretty much day-to-day -day basis, and that we can cut back on those force requirements, then we'd be not quite over the, over the horizon because we would continue to be deployed in the region, but um, it would be a much smaller footprint. We need, her argument is we need to be not over the horizon because actually closing the strait would require a kind of quick response that if you're literally not in the region, you need to be able to perform. So you, we could transition to a lighter footprint um, not over the horizon, um, save some amount of money, um, sensitive to the um, points that John made, the lighter footprint is considered to be quite desirable um, if you're worried about the sort of alienating presence of the US in the region, mm -hmm. um, and at the same time would not be um, undermining the US ability to perform the missions it really does need to perform, um, which is most importantly, not only, but by far most importantly in her analysis and flows from the analysis in the book is um, making sure that oil can flow through the street. Would you like to? Um, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I would add that that part of the reason why why Caitlin thinks there needs to be at least some footprint is that um, if the the potential of Iran closing the strait, if that's the albeit unlikely but most likely unlikely possibility of, of some kind of disruption if the United States left or pulled back or had less, um, that. Uh, it would be key to figure out that Iran was doing stuff right away, right? So if Iran tried to close the strait, they would probably do it with mines. They'd be laying mines. And if the United States has a, an, an intelligence presence um, and minesweepers in the region, right, that can do a lot to, to figure out very quickly that Iran is up to, up to something and respond to it um, very quickly. And those, are, those particular capabilities are not capabilities that you can have offshore, right? 
I want to come back to you, John, on this because um, this is one argument. Some scholars have argued, have made the other case, have argued that with new technology, um, it's much more feasible to have just an over-the-horizon approach to protecting Gulf oil. Yeah, so I think about this in three ways. Um, first of all, I think there's economic and sort of balance of power reasons um, that energy security in the Gulf is, is not as important as it, as it perhaps used to be. And we talked a lot about those. Um, you know, there's no regional hegemon on the horizon that could threaten the free flow of oil. Um, it's implausible to worry about China or Russia, um, you know, coming in in our absence and disrupting the flow of oil. Uh, the region is in a state of defense dominance where conquest is hard, Offense is risky, deterrence is robust, et cetera. Um, so those are all sort of in favor of reducing or withdrawing completely. Then there are, so what's, what is the practical utility of, of, mm -hmm. of forces in the region? And we talked about earlier this, you know, they, basically there's two crisis scenarios that people point to, and one is the closure of the Strait of Hormuz, and the other is uh, some drastic civil conflict in Saudi Arabia. As we talked about earlier, Rosemary in particular said, it's not clear that our forces in the region currently prevent such a scenario in Saudi Arabia happening. And if it were to happen, they wouldn't remedy it. Um, with regard to the Strait of Hormuz, Caitlin Talmadge goes into, um, you know, our minesweepers, our MCM ships from Bahrain take about four days to get to the Strait in order to disrupt um, an attempt at a closure. Um, and if we were to base them in Diego Garcia or something, it would take a lot longer. Um, and that's, that's one argument to keep in mind. But largely, we would be able to, I think, uh, respond to such a thing uh, with over-the-horizon forces because of strategic petroleum reserves and because largely, I think, we could manage a response at our own pace uh, for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about. Um, but more than that, I think it's un it's not wise strategically to design force posture based on worst case scenario, unlikely contingencies. Uh, that's, that's generally not, I think, wise to have in foreign policy. The final way to think about this though, and I think this is the key in something that um, is not one of the core questions answered in the book, um, is instead of looking at what do we lose from withdrawal, what, what possible costs are there with regard to contingency responsiveness and uh, regional stability? Instead, we should consider what are the strategic benefits of ridding ourselves of our habitual interventionism in the region, right? So when we assume responsibility for strategic uh, stability, you know, stability in the region or securing the free flow of oil, when those things just about take care of themselves, that's bad enough, but when those responsibilities also end up imposing additional costly burdens on the United States in the form of managing local disputes that are far from our interests or being the intervener of first resort um, or the punisher of rogue states or getting sucked into you know, costly and impossible to win counterinsurgency campaigns and so on, forward deployment in and of itself I think serves as a temptation for policymakers to intervene for bad reasons. Uh, and that should be balanced against considerations of energy security. Uh, and that's a tough balance to get right, I admit. 
um, but it's certainly an argument more in favor of full withdrawal uh, compared with uh, uh, residual forces. I think this is, a, this is probably a great point to think about turning it over to the audience for some questions. Um, the book is really an, an excellent look at the topic while acknowledging that there are these many unanswered questions. Should we be considering worst case scenarios, best case scenarios? But within that framework, I think it makes a really coherent case for some reconsideration of this relationship. Um, so let's start here in the front. Wait for the mic, please. Ah, you got it. Oh. There's an audience online, and they need to hear you. Thank you. Okay, I'm Netra Halpern with Peace Films, and I really appreciate this panel, which, as you said, narrowly focuses on the economic and political. Uh, parts of getting the Middle East out, I mean, getting the United States out of the Middle East. And what, and you, what you, your point about the difference between prosperity um, reasons and security reasons, and what my contention is, is that the past administrations have conflated the two, especially in when talking to the people of the United States, and they're saying it's all about terrorism when it's really about uh, oil. And so my question is, um, do you feel that, uh, that that's true and that um, the supposed a huge uh, terrorist threat halfway around the planet is really just a, uh, a goal to keep the oil flowing? And uh, how would you deal with that as far as uh, the, I don't want to say propaganda, but the uh, messaging to the people of this country? Thank you. Okay, let's take a, a couple of questions and then we'll go ahead and answer them. Um, there in the... Uh, brown jacket. Um, and please do phrase your question in the form of a question. Thank you for doing that. Um, Doug Hengel, I, I teach at Johns Hopkins SICE, and I used to be at the State Department working on energy issues. Um, this number of $75 billion a year, uh, is that our total commitment to the Gulf, or is that just what you estimate our our commitment to keeping the oil flowing is because there's also, we have other interests out there, including fighting terrorism and uh, deterring Iran and stability in Iraq. So how much of the 75 billion is really related to the free flow of oil? And, and the second part is, have you thought about um, sharing the burden? And I'm thinking in particular about China, and maybe a little provocative, but going forward, they're going to be the ones that depend a lot more than us on the free flow of oil out of the Gulf. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you're in the front. Oday Aberdeen, a consultant on Middle East oil and banking, and I have lived in the region uh, for the last 40 years. Uh, two points, I think this is an excellent panel. It's Questions, very, please. It's, you have an excellent panel. There are two things I'd like to point out today the Chinese are the largest importer of Saudi oil, the Japanese. So the U.S. imports, I think, less than 3 or 4% of its needs from the region. Most U.S. oil comes from Canada, from Mexico. And historically, the U.S. never really imported more than 15% of its oil. If you go back to the 70s, the oil has been going to Europe. My The other point that wasn't highlighted, that... I estimate two and a half million Americans go to work every day because of Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Abu Dhabi. Look at our military sales, look at our 
exports, uh, look at the, uh, look the flow of money from the Persian Gulf and from these Arab countries is as significant as the Chinese. So there, there are economic factors and jobs are at stake and that's one other reason aside. Finally, the US was off the horizon prior to 1975. After 75, we came on land. Okay, so yeah, so three interesting questions. I think big topics are what's the role of other interests, not just of oil? Um, how do you weigh perhaps US Middle East interventions as a cost vice just protecting the cost of oil? And then finally, the question about China and where we might be going in terms of the multipolar Middle East. You want me to take your first step? Do you want to go first? Um, I'd like to go. Okay, first. good, so good. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, these are great questions. Um, in terms of the oil interests versus other interests in the region, and this goes to, I think, both the first two questions in terms of both the money and, and the purpose, um, we, we do have an author in the book, uh, Dan Byman, who goes through all of the U.S. interests in the Persian Gulf, right? Um, for the purposes of our analysis, we've limited it to energy, but we don't necessarily say that energy is the only reason that we're there, just that it's a very important reason that we're there. Um, and so because the United States has other interests, including counterterrorism, nuclear nonproliferation, supporting Israel, um, these things could be reasons why the United States might want to remain engaged, right? We just set it aside for the most part. Um, personally, I don't think that, I don't think it's a ruse. Like, I don't think the counterterrorism stuff is sort of an excuse to be there. I think, I think the U.S. is actually quite upfront about oil being a reason why we are there. Um, but then in terms of, of you know, the $75 billion and how much of that goes to oil versus non-oil, um, so that's the cost of the additional forces necessary to, per, to perform missions um, in the Persian Gulf in the event of a contingency involving oil, right? So it doesn't include operations costs. So if there was some kind of you know, major uh, upheaval or battle, there would be additional costs on top of that. Um, but it's specifically for oil-related missions. Um, and then I also think the, the, the question of importers and who's paying and you know, should China perhaps pay or, or kick in, I mean, the question of, of burden sharing is a good one. Um, ultimately, what the United States is doing really is a global public good, right? So if the United States being there does help stabilize the Middle East in terms of stabilizing the flow of oil, right, then that's something everybody in the world benefits from regardless of how much they import, right? Um, because the global price of oil is global, right? Even if China didn't import any oil from the Persian Gulf, um, it would still benefit from the price moderation effect of the United States being there, right? So the, the whole, all of the, the talk about imports, um, I think is, is less important than you know, capabilities. China doesn't currently have the capabilities to do it, but they are a power that's growing and you could make the case that um, they should contribute in some way uh, to this mission if you think the mission should continue, right? We're questioning whether it should continue. Thanks. Um, let's go to Ken and then back to Just, just to follow up on that point, um, you mentioned that, that uh, Saudi or, or Middle Eastern imports represent 3 to 4% of American consumption. I, I think that's probably a little low, but, it, but it's more generally true that the vast majority of, of physical petroleum supplies to the United States don't come from Middle Eastern sources, but 
and this is, this is one point I try to be as emphatic as possible about, is, is the origin of whatever molecules are consumed in the United States does not matter. What matters is that if there's a shooting war somewhere in the Middle East, those mo molecules will cost more and that will harm the American economy. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think that the actual specific bilateral import relationships matter that much. Um, the, the issue about China is an interesting one, right? Like, China cares a lot about their energy security. Um, in, the, in the 2000s, they spent a lot of money on these bilateral deals that oftentimes weren't the best investments um, by some measures. Um, and, and more recently, they, they, they've focused a lot of resources on building up their own um, oil stockpile, which is uh, sort of contributing to this global public good. So, um, and they're, they're also doing a lot to moderate consumption for both energy security reasons and because pollution is a big problem there. So, so I, th I think to a large extent, uh, we're seeing China try to try to act as a good faith partner um, to to address these issues in terms of um, um, to what extent they should participate in some of the other other measures. I'll leave that to my colleagues. Yeah, so just, um, I agree with all the Rose said. I would just amplify a little bit. The seventy five billion dollars really does cover our entire security commitment to the region. So if you thought we needed to stay um, to not to avoid nonproliferation and provide security for those reasons, then you would not be able to make that large, nearly that large of a cut because the, the operational capabilities that are there to for these Gulf contingencies are, this, are the same capabilities that we would use if we had to come to the aid of an ally that was invaded. Um, it would not prevent us, as a, for, for example, in the case of Saudi, if we're doing all the other things we do to support Saudi and increase its security. But if, they, if the Saudis were imagining they didn't need nuclear weapons in the face of Iranian nuclear weapons because the United States was coming to its aid, um, which is not really a role that we play, but we are nevertheless provide them with some amount of security, um, then that would be in the balance in terms of this. Um, so to repeat what Rose said, I mean, we think that there are you know, at least four major types of interests in the region, but oil is the key one. That um, it's at least been typically the standard justification, but oil, um, nonproliferation, terrorism, which may or may not be the cause, result of our being there, so there's an endogeneity issue. Um, and then also in the Bush administration, um, the goal of spreading democracy and stabilizing the region for that, you know, along those lines um, were, are all factors. And so you could say, well, we don't want to do it for oil, but we want to do it for some other reason, and then it would you know, for a final decision about withdrawing from the region, you would need to look at all those interests and take them into account. So I think that answers the 75, but the $75 billion is the whole military commitment in all of its facets. Okay, let's uh, take a couple more questions. Um, in the front here, and then up the back there. Yeah, Ken Meyercourt, retiree. Uh, you all don't seem to have taken into account the benefits that accrue to us from the uh, control we've had over the oil trade coming out of the Persian Gulf for the last 50 years. Um, for instance, if we felt the need to impose an oil embargo on some country, uh, as we did on Japan six months before Pearl Harbor, it certainly makes it more feasible if we can interdict their supplies of uh, oil coming out of the Persian Gulf. What has been our historical record in this regard, considering the sanctions on Iran, uh, the two Gulf Wars, the Iran-Iraq War, uh, have we in fact uh, not guaranteed freedom of navigation, but in fact restricted it? And then there was a question, I think, further up the back here, if you could please. Thank you.
Jim Duhom, unaffiliated. Uh, read recently about the possible emergency or emerging cooperation between Israel and the uh, Sunni Arab states. It strikes me that if our contribution went down, that perhaps there would be increased cooperation between Israel and, and the, the Sunni Arab states. Has your book explored the relevance of our policy toward Israel in the region or Israel's policies in the region? And if not, do you have uh, views on it? Okay, um, and let's grab one more question, this lady here in the pink sweater. Hi, I'm Medea Benjamin with the group Code Pink. Um, isn't Donald Trump's whole thing that the Saudis and the others in the region should just pay more for this? So when you talk about sharing the burden, uh, isn't that what the present administration means? Okay. So I think we fairly well avoided political issues until this last round of <laughs> questions, but uh, I guess we can get into them a little. Um, so particularly, I think this first question might be a really interesting one. Um, to what extent has the US benefited from being able to control the flow of oil, not just insure it? Rose, it's right down your alley. Yeah, Why don't yeah, you start with that yeah, one? Yeah, so, uh... right, so I'm writing a book about, um, about this that looks at historical cases. Um, it is true, the United States embargoed oil to, to Japan in 1941. It's one of the reasons that they attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor, um, you know, roughly six months later. Um, but the U.S. didn't actually do that physically. The U.S. stopped trading with them. And that was a time when um, the market looked very different than it does today, right? The United States was oil Godzilla, right? And so by, by refusing to trade with Japan, um, that actually meant that 80% of their imports were gone, right? Um, and there are so few suppliers that they could all kind of get together and say, look, we're mad at you, Japan. We don't want you to continue to, to expand in China. Um, and so they could do this and have an effect. Um, today, and in terms of the Persian Gulf, uh, it's much harder to try to organize an embargo in the sense of, of getting everybody to stop trading oil with a particular country. Um, the embargo that we put on Iran, I think, surprised a lot of people in how um, effective it was. But that embargo, you know, there's a lot of imprecision in, in the terms. I think of that as more of a boycott. So we basically said, Iran, we're not going to buy your oil, right? Which is different than saying, we're not going to sell you oil or we're not going to, you know, um, yeah, so we're, we're not targeting them to cut off oil to them. We're targeting their ability to uh, get money from selling oil to, to you know, other countries. Um, in terms of the role of the U.S. in the Gulf, I mean, if the United States really wanted to interdict oil supplies around the world, um, simply by virtue of having the strongest Navy by far and having the global command of the commons, um, the United States could, could potentially do that um, through the Strait of Malacca, um, where China gets a lot of its oil through, without having bases in the Gulf, necessarily. Go ahead. Go ahead. And without any expertise on that, I mean, in general, in terms of how the market is in shipments are structured, it would, you, if you were trying to prevent a particular country from getting access to imports, you would try to do that at the point of import rather than the point of export, because you wouldn't want the barrels taken off the, 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 the market for other consumers. Yeah, I would just say, I, mean, I think that um, I would just amplify Rose's point, and I agree with Ken, but um, the country that worries most actually about the potential disruption of its oil is China. 
And the, the, the reason is um, that it has a growing potential conflict with the United States, and the U.S. Com controls the seas, basically. So we can, you know, we dominate everywhere between the Persian Gulf across the Indian Ocean um, and a lot of the South China Sea. So um, the if, we wanted to, if we wanted to use that coercive tool, um, which we don't talk about, but in fact we're quite aware that we possess, um, we would continue to have it independent of whether they were deployed um, in the Persian Gulf itself. Um, second of all, if you think about situations where you might want to um, try to stop the flow of oil, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is they're, they're importantly very big conflicts. I mean, it's, it's, you have to imagine a large conflict that's an, a major act of war. Um, and so even if we weren't deployed in the Gulf, I mean, we have mobile, our, our Navy will, and our air, air capabilities continue to be mobile. Um, and so we wouldn't be foregoing the ability to sort of do almost anything anywhere given um, great enough urgency and a little bit of time. Uh, what we're really talking about is being out of the Gulf so far over the horizon and not committed that we don't have the near-term option. Um, but we really can't give up that option because we still have by far the world's largest military. Um, and, so, and, we're, and we're not suggesting that it would be otherwise. Um, we really don't look at the, the, this, the issue that was raised about the potential cooperation between Israel and states in the region, partly because, or primarily because they don't play an important role, um, at least as we understand it, in terms of stabilizing the flow of oil. Um, so there are lots of aspects of the region that we don't address um, because we are trying to focus narrowly on, on the flow of oil. And in terms of President Trump, it's actually quite a good question um, but of course there's no answer because we have no idea of what he actually means. Um, we do suggest though that, that Saudi should do more um, to enhance its ability to um, pump oil and export it even if there is a, a conflict in the Persian Gulf. And so one, I mean, we believe that Saudi should take greater responsibility, especially given the amount of security protection we provide um, to have um, bypass pipelines and to other things to stabilize its infrastructure. Um, and that would be a very reasonable thing for it to ask for. I think that if the United States actually starts to ask for subsidies for the actual spending it does in the Gulf, it will be about as successful as we're going to be with Mexico and the wall. Um, but, but even, or maybe even less so, because I think Saudi can actually argue that they play a very valuable role in stabilizing the price of oil, because they have been um, for the most part, except for maybe the last few years where they've actually played a large a role in keeping up the price of oil, but they want a stable price of oil, which is quite consistent with the price the U.S. can live with. And by having this reserve capability, um, it actually does play a very valuable role. And it, it's at some cost, at least in the short term, in certain situations, the Saudi to play that role. So they see themselves as contributing um, to um, stability of the market. And perhaps worth noting that, you know, uh, many of the proposals in this book are in some ways a much more nuanced version of some of the things that Donald Trump has been saying. So he says, <laughs> make others pay for it. But in the book, what you, you guys advocate is, you know, working with other countries to try and provide ways for them to reduce their own vulnerability, increase their own stockpiles. In the case of China and the U.S., you know, building pipelines will both reduce the vulnerability of the Strait of Hormuz and also reduce China's vulnerability to yep. the U.S. Yeah, and I would add the one, one ma major and growing importer um, that is not doing a good job on reserves is India. And since the, the stability and the ability to cushion the, um, against the, if you really want all major importers to um, make their contribution, then the Indians are the lagging, not hostily lagging, but the, the lagging country. 
and that over time as that you know would be a very valuable um, component for them to make, and it is an investment that other countries are making, and it's quite costly. Um, I mean, if you, you can calculate the basic cost of a, of a strategic reserve by the value of the, um, the cost per gallon of oil and how, much, how large U.S. Reser the reserves are, the United States has roughly, although Ken can tell us in detail, um, but has around, uh, roughly, I think now a little bit below, 700 million um, barrels. So if you think of that at you know, $60 a barrel or $100 a barrel, whatever, you get the, you know, the, a very crude but basic estimate of those reserves. The Chinese are planning to build up to 300 million barrels um, they're well on their way, and I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if they increase the, the size of their reserves. Did you want to? Uh, the only thing I would add uh, is uh, it's probably unwise to take Trump's uh, tweets or press statements uh, and draw, you know, serious strategic uh, ideas from them. Uh, I think he uh, doesn't um, come to his conclusions oftentimes uh, through deep study, uh, and um, he also, I think, um, is, in a lot of ways, s aspects of foreign policy are kind of on autopilot because, um, because he doesn't think deeply about these issues, and the existing bureaucracy and sort of strategies are continuing along. Um, and I think it's also true that, you know, he... Besides not reading a ton, one of his other attributes is uh, a, a lack of self-control. And I think s there are possibilities that could happen in the future in the Middle East where um, instead of pulling back, as he seems to sometimes hint at, uh, he might, in fact, uh, decide to do more. And so that's, uh, you know, you have to be careful about what Trump says. Perhaps a less hopeful note here is that the, the odds of this kind of very nuanced, carefully thought out, long-term plan under an administration like the Trump administration may be more questionable. Um, but let's, let's try and take one more round of questions before we run out of time. There's one in the middle here, a uh, gentleman down in the front here. Yeah, and then uh, third row. Hi, my name is Ben Hoffner. I'm a student. Uh, and today, the panel, in discussing the worst-case scenario for an intervention, has largely looked at internal forces within the Persian Gulf, uh, following the conventional wisdom that no outside nation would dare to threaten, you know, relative U.S. military hegemony in the Persian Gulf. But considering the recent combined forces, of uh, the potential for U.S. pulling out troops from the Middle East, um, Russia's willingness to provoke U.S. interests in Syria and Ukraine, in addition to a strategic alignment between Russia and Iran, how likely would a Russian intervention be, and what would it look like in the case of drawing out troops from the Persian Gulf? Okay, uh, let's go with this gentleman here. In terms, uh, my name is uh, Stephen Shore. In terms of actually closing the Straits of Hormuz, could, is that beyond the capability of a non-state actor and um, uh, among state actors? Is there any cons conceivable scenario where a nation getting a significant portion of its petroleum through the straits would close them? And what, uh, if not, it, what, why, any scenarios for a, a produ oil producer to close the straits other than in the midst of a response to American military or Israeli military action? 
getting the last one done here. Thank you. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, who worked on the Iranian situation for the Department of Agriculture. I want to follow up with this question. It's a little bit like my question. <clears throat> when we, should we re reduce our presence in that region? Does Iran have the capability to replace us there? Because I say that because the Iranians are heavily, heavily dependent on, on the exports of oil. And it seemed to me a couple of decades ago, maybe you have more recent numbers, 80% of its foreign exchange came from exports of oil. So they really would be shooting themselves in the foot and very badly by closing the straits. So the question is the other side. Are they building up a navy to make sure that those straits remain open because for their own interests? Thank you. It was a very interesting discussion, by the way. Okay. Why don't we start over here this time? So um, I don't think non-state actors have the capability to close the Strait of Hormuz. That's really going to be state-centered. Uh, when you talk about non-state actors, it's really about taking control of a single sort of oil well in this, or, or you know, attacking one. Um, Iran, you know, fully closing the Strait of Hormuz, I think, might even be beyond the capability of Iran to fully mine it to the point where it would be impassable. Uh, tankers are are pretty resilient to, to mines, and given the rapidity of the response, uh, I, you know, I, do, I don't think full closure is uh, terribly plausible. Um, so, you know, maybe we didn't emphasize enough as there are reasons why the clo in Iranian closure of the strait is extremely unlikely. Uh, yes, it would be detrimental to their own economic interests, but it would also mobilize almost certainly an, not only a regional but an international retaliatory response. Uh, not just trying to open the strait, but bombing Iran's territory almost, almost probably, you know? Uh, and so uh, that could have the potential to even threaten the survivability of the regime. And uh, that's not something that Iran wants. So just that's to kind of emphasize how unlikely this is. Uh, I, I can't figure out, other than in a massive regional war, which Josh Robna's chapter makes clear is, is not um, on the horizon, uh, why Iran would have the rationale to, to do this. I mean, to your question, I mean, the Strait of Hormuz doesn't have like a gate on it, like, the, like, like a railroad crossing or something, right? Like actually, the, there, there have been the academic investigations of what a potential uh, closure would look like. And, and it would be very, very sort of a small tail risk that, that the, the, the straits would be fully closed. Um, I think what you'd be looking at is, is if, if traffic through the straits slowed by like 20%, that would still be one of the biggest oil supply disruptions ever, right? Um, so it, it, the, the straits definitely, it's unlikely that they would be fully closed, but it, they still matter a lot. Um, to your point about Iran, um, I think for, for any regime that, that thinks about uh, twisting the taps, I mean, any decision would be based on what they think they could reclaim, even if they had their output curtailed, what, what they thought they could recoup and increase prices. So, Just quickly before we move on, I forgot to sort of insert this into the conversation. It's worth just looking at the capabilities of the region generally. I think Iran's... Uh, military spending makes up something like 9 or 10 percent of the region uh, overall, and Saudi Arabia is something like 44 percent. So there's a 
real imbalance of capabilities, and that adds to the uh, problem that Iran faces there. Um, yeah, so I think that I agree on the non-state actor side, um, partly because it would take a very large number of minds. So it's not that you say you couldn't create some, you know, fear or problem in the Gulf. Um, it all, not only takes a large number of minds, but then actually also requires the ability to prevent or slow the ability to remove those mines, which takes some amount of, um, you know, air support or cover to make it, or anti-ship missiles to make it hard. So I think it's, it's not to say you couldn't have some disruption, but there's not a real capability there for a non-state actor. Um, would Iran close the strait? I mean, only an extremist, but you can imagine that the threat is there. So for example, if we're in a situation in which we are launching a large war against Iran, which was a real possibility and has continues to be a background possibility if the nuclear agreement breaks down, um, Iran holds this as a, a potentially coercive threat. So if it's in a very, if it, if it finds itself in a truly extreme situation, um, it, we at least have to be open to the fact that it would use it as a countermeasure. So if the Americans or the Israelis launched an attack against the um, Iranian nuclear program, this would be a, a, an expected response. Um, Iran has waved the flag of closing the strait, um, but that hasn't, for instance, when the United States threatened the, the sanctions that eventually imposed. Um, so there is some doubt about its credibility, but I'm not, I would not take the possibility off the table um, in recognition of the fact that this is a, a kind of act that is an act of war, um, but Iran could find itself in a war and use this as a coercive tool. So in that sense, we provide some protection against that, and if the, if the threat were crippling, um, it would be something we would need to take into consideration. Um, we've talked about the, the variety of cushions. I agree that... Um, it would be very hard to close the strait, but as Ken said, 20% or 50% mm -hmm. um, is, you know, is a dramatic reduction. 50% of the strait is all the equivalent of all of Saudi exports. Um, so it would have a very large effect with all the moderating factors that we've noted. Um, it's also the case that, I mean, John referred to, said, well, you know, the, Saudi, the Iranians will be deterred because of this global reaction. But global reactions only are led, are led by the United States. Nobody else really gets there when we fight in the Gulf with our partners, we are the, you know, it is the United States plus a bunch of other countries that we sort of don't always remember who they are. Um, so we have to say, well, if, if, that, if you say that's deterring Iran, then you should be worried about us leaving because we're saying not only are we leaving, but we're not committed to fighting in that eventuality. We're, willing, we're gonna absorb that cost as part of the benefit of, you know, as, part, as the benefit um, or I guess is the cost of not being there and then reap the benefits of not having a military that's available to go there quickly. Of course, we could always go there because we have forces deployed elsewhere. Um, but the argument here is we would be breaking that commitment, not only moving the forces, but not committed. So I think that it's a dicey issue. Um, where it's a major counterfactual <laughs> um, for us to not be there. Um, and I think that makes Rose and I, in, as editors, just a, a little uneasy. Un we're uneasy about it. These are big... Um, but we have many reasons to think that maybe the costs are not as large as they seem. Um, I think, yes, Iran has a big incentive to keep the strait open, except if they want to close it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. They mostly want to keep it open just like we do, but um, there, are, there are these scenarios. And I'll just say most of defense planning is, I wouldn't call it against worst-case scenarios, but it's against scenarios that are sufficiently bad for you um, that it makes sense to plan against them. And so that's what is always hard. None of these are likely. Mm -hmm. With respect to Russia, um, it's a good concern. 
it was, you know, it, Russia was on, less on everybody's minds three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I think, however, a, a, a hostile Russian um, attack into the region is very different than, than Russia welcomed into Syria. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, Russia is not the Soviet Union um, in terms of both its geography, which is relevant to getting to the Gulf, um, and the scale of its, um, of its military. Um, it's, essential, it's, it's not a world-class military in the way that it was during the Cold War. Um, so unless the Russian capabilities become, greatly, become much greater than they are, they'd have a lot of trouble um, projecting power into the Gulf in a way that would actually, um, in a sustained way, um, disrupt the flow of oil. Even though these countries, many of them, have quite limited capabilities against the United States, they do have good air defenses, they do have limited navies. Um, Russia doesn't have the reach to get there in a sustained way. It might in the future, um, and it would, I think that increasingly given Russian behavior is something we would want to be aware of and sensitive to, but it's not, um, and it may be a sense neglected in the book um, because we were just more worried about Russia than we were five years ago when we sort of started the project. Um, but I think right now it's not that kind of threat. Okay, um, so I think we have time to take maybe, yeah, a couple more questions if there are any. Okay, there's one over here on the left. Uh, yeah, and in the middle up there, if you wouldn't mind. <clears throat> Thank you. Hi, I'm Gene Gershoy. I'm, uh, I work for Senator Ed Markey. Um, so, Charlie and Rose, the, the way that you framed the, the book was as an economic issue, and you talked about how you know, if there are security consequences to dependence on oil, then those are very difficult to quantify, and so it becomes less of a monetary comparison. But as you acknowledged, there are security consequences to the U.S. presence in the Gulf, meaning that the while the principal reason for staying in the Gulf is to protect oil, there are other reasons to stay in the Gulf, nuclear proliferation, counterterrorism, other things. And so just looking at U.S. policy prospectively, I wonder how sensitive would a shift in the U.S. posture in the Gulf be to those other issues? So that's the first question, just how much are policymakers going to care about issues that are not related to the protection of the flow of oil in making the decision about whether or not the U.S. should maintain its posture there? And the second question I would have is, in your estimation as analysts, how important are those other consequences for leaving or staying in assessing whether or not we should leave or stay. And I'm thinking in particular about the role of the United States as a security guarantor for preventing countries from going down the nuclear path, for example. Okay, actually this seems like a, a pretty good question to end <coughs> on, and if people want to make any final comments before we conclude. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. um, I'll take a first crack at it. I think that, I mean, it's very hard to know how the, how the politics will play, so I'm just gonna put that aside, because there are reasonable disagreements on a lot of these issues, and even solid analysis doesn't win the day much of the time. So I mean, that's a different kind of guess. But on my view, I think that, um, and this is just my own view, which is a little separate. I mean, I think that terrorism, you know, the, our, the, our reduced terrorism capabilities because of being in the region is sort of a wash and maybe a benefit. I mean, I'm not that far from John's perspective on that. I don't, I don't think it, I don't think we buy ourselves much by being there, especially because in this policy recommendation, it doesn't mean that we can't continue to aid countries with intelligence and other type of ability to um, pursue their own um, stabilization and counterterrorism efforts. And there, I think there is some of the, the downside danger. Spreading democracy, I think it, you know, we just can't do it. We shouldn't have been trying to do it. So it's, it's no cost there. And we should just get you know accept that. And the extent that we don't, all the better to not be there so we don't 
So I think it really comes down for me to is the proliferation issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of that comes down to the Iran deal. I mean, I think if the Iran deal holds, everybody else in the region is going to be pretty satisfied to sit where they are, um, which is to say not intensively pursue programs. Um, if the Iran deal breaks down, then I think, and you know, I mean, I know your work, um, you know, there's going to be more of an, there is a potential reaction to um, the Iranian proliferation by a number of players in the region. Um, and I think my own view is, contrary to some like very firm restrainers, is that that's actually dangerous. I'm reluctant, I'm very glad that the Iran deal's there and the Iran's likely not to get nuclear weapons. I'd be very worried to see Saudi, um, Turkey, in the longer, longer term, Egypt maybe pursue programs. And um, I think that would be, for my personally, you know, that would be the thing that I would worry about most in terms of not being in the region is that it might well be worth some amount of investment um, because it's, once again, it's just very hard to calculate the cost for the world, put aside the United States, of a, of a nuclear conflict in the region. I think that probability does go up um, if, if, if you get proliferation in the region of, of nuclear use. Um, whether we need the same kind of posture or whether we need a very different kind of commitment to provide the Saudis with the kind of security um, that we don't currently necessarily protect, provide them anyway, you know, I think that's a different question. We could probably provide extended deterrence over the horizon, um, but I don't think you could adequately reassure them without making a firm commitment. And so whether we want to do that, I think it's a really hard question, but I think it would be um, generated by one, our leaving the region, and two, the Iran deal breaking down. Okay. Last comments? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's a, these are great questions. And, and Charlie, I agree with, with your answers for the most part. Um, I would just add that you know, it, a lot depends on why you think states get nuclear weapons. Right, and and the the assumption we usually make is that they get it for security purposes to deter attack. And if that is why Iran is interested in nuclear weapons, then the United States being a little less involved in the region could reduce their desire to get them. Right, I'm not saying that that that's a reason to leave, um, but that it could actually cut in the opposite direction. Um, a country like Saudi Arabia is harder to to figure out um, how they would respond to it, but. The United States could continue to sell them lots and lots of weapons um, that they can use to deter an attack from Iran or, or any other country. John? I mean, I would agree. I, 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 my hope is that the Iran deal holds, and I think it will pacify uh, nuclear uh, proliferation ambitions in the region. Um, but I would also agree with Rosemary that, you know, I think Iran's primary uh, motivation, if it had one, to obtain nuclear weapons was fear of a U.S. or Israeli attack. And if those two things are minimized, or if the presence that virtually encircles Iran in the region is reduced, that motivation will, will be undermined. And, 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 and therefore, if it's the case that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states have um, their, their only justification would be to counter an Iranian nuclear weapon. Again, it might, it might reduce the overall concern there. But it is, as I think Char Charles talked about earlier, very conjectural because uh, it's not a situation we've, we've been in there. Well, thank you all for coming today and for your attention. Um, if you're interested in reading the book, there are copies for sale outside. I highly recommend it and hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Um, after we're done here, there will be a luncheon upstairs. Just uh, go out up the spiral staircase. The restrooms are by the yellow wall on that upper floor. 
Um, and please join me in giving our panelists a big hand.